The opinions expressed in these materials represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Reference to any third party, specific product, process, or service by trade name, trademark, or otherwise does not constitute or imply endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by salient. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Epsilon Theory Podcast. I'm Michael Correo, Head of Investor Relations and Communications at Salient. And I'm here today with Salient's Executive Vice President of Asset Management, Rusty Gwynn. And as always, Dr. Ben Hunt, Salient's Chief Investment Strategist and author of Epsilon Theory. Thanks, Michael. Good to be here today. We are uh, starting off the new year with our, our first podcast of the year. Happy 2017. Thank you. Same to you. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good today. I, I've, I've got that certain feeling, and I, uh, and I think Mr. Gwynn will, uh, will, will know what I'm talking about. It's that feeling when your wallet is, is a little too thick, when it's kind of hard to fold because you've had to stuff so many bills into it from having a good night of poker. It's also hard <laughs> to fold whenever you draw ace-king suited every single hand. Yeah, yeah, different, different, different. Yeah, it, was, it was a good night. It was a, it was a good night. And uh, I, we'll, we'll come back to some more uh, poker analogies as we, we go along. But it's, it's a good morning. It's that certain kind of feeling. I think it's a post-truth morning. Is that right? Meaning after or truth no longer exists. Well, who knows so. if it's morning or not? We're, we're living in a post-truth world. It could be That's any right. time of day. That's right. That's true. That's why they don't have clocks in the, the casinos in, uh, in, in Vegas or anywhere else, because they don't want you to know what time it is in the quote-unquote real world. But uh, I, I wanted to, to – I'm really happy to, to start off 2017 podcast series uh, with my friend and partner, Rusty Gwynn. And, and I want to take a second as, as well to talk about what we're doing with Epsilon Theory because it, it actually relates to Rusty. Uh, we've been talking about doing this for a long time, but with, with Epsilon Theory, it, it has struck this chord. Um, that's not just because of what I write about. I think it's because there is this hunger for authenticity, for if not truth-telling, a truth-telling, at least truth-seeking in people who observe and talk about markets and politics. And uh, what we want to do is transform this effort from what I'll call as a, as a note-centric and as a Ben Hunt-centric, what I write effort, into a site-centric, into a, uh, I'll say it, a movement. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we'll be launching the new and revised the Epsilon Theory 2.0 website um, in a, soon after this podcast comes out. And so I really want to encourage anyone who's listening to this to come check it out, because what we're trying to do is to open up the sandbox uh, to have other like-minded, in the sense of truth-seeking voices, uh, in the sandbox of Epsilon Theory. Rusty Gwynn's going to be one of those voices. And I got to tell everyone who's listening, you're going you're gonna to love what you see, what you read. And uh, we'll have some others as well. But it's, uh, it's, it's very exciting for me personally, because I, I love seeing this, this expand and take off. But it's even more exciting to me as a 
and this will sound silly, but as, as a citizen. So um, thanks, Rusty, for your participation. Michael, as always, you're the best as far as being the producer and the, the force behind the scenes here. And uh, I want everybody to be looking for that. Oh, we look forward to it. Well, Rusty, what we wanted to talk to today was about the, it was the subject of my most recent note. And I called it fiat money and fiat news. It's about what we call fake news. And, and we're going to go in a couple of different directions today, I hope. But the, but, the, but the main thought that I want to talk about is one of these fundamental pillars of epsilon theory, which is that so much of what we take as natural and eternal in our social lives is a construction, is the, if not the accident of history, fate, technological developments and the like, is at least constructed by, driven by our human social animal response to changes in technology, changes in demographics and the like. I've got a couple examples. I, I think you probably do as well. But the but the but where I'm going with all this is that my view is that in the same way that money as a thing, our notion of what money is has changed over the centuries. Now we have a very specific conception of it, but it's not natural. It's just what we've evolved over mm. time, so is our conception of news. So is our conception of information. And I see it changing. I see it evolving still further in a different direction. Uh, but in all these cases, it is this construction of demographics, what it means for a mass society to develop uh, in technology. And um, I think it has real significant implications for us as investors, for us as citizens. Uh, and that's the sort of things I love exploring in the notes I write. But going forward is the sort of thing that I want to explore both in these podcasts and on the, 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 the broader Epsilon Theory site. So that that's where we're going here. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll throw out there my two best examples. One of them I used in the note and one of them I, I think maybe I've talked about before, about how things that we take for granted are purely political social constructions. And the, the, the first of these, which I didn't write about in the note, but I feel pretty strongly about because I, I think I've described to people, I, we, my wife and I, we homeschool our kids, which is people think we're wackos, but that's okay. Uh, the entire existence of public education was invented by the Prussians in the mid-19th century in order to have educated soldiers who had allegiance to Prussia. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these things. I mean, mm -hmm. public education, or I was going to call it mass public education, mm -hmm. right? It didn't exist. It, 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 it wasn't a thing. And yet today, we take it as a not just a, a, a right of citizens, but as one of these primary goals of government for all these wonderful things. Oh, of course you need to, the government should be the ones to educate children. But trust me, this was invented very deliberately by a militaristic government in order to inculcate these principles of patriotism and teach soldiers who now need to know how to load a gun and follow orders how to be more effective soldiers. That's where public education comes from. It is where it comes from. I mean, I think, as with so many other things, 
the they become co-opted, of course, and and I think that the the inevitable path of good things happening in society is that uh, we discover that something is good and we discover that something is profitable, um, and it goes along an evolution to become a right, a natural right. A natural you know, we, right. We we discover that um, you know being fed is good, and and of course we decide well that everyone uh, has a basic. Uh, right to that, and uh, as as we discovered that shelter, and then we discovered that uh, life and liberty, or at least that the Scottish Enlightenment discovered that those were things that we felt were were natural inheritances of 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 man. Uh, you know, ultimately, then public education follows suit, and it's not surprising. Uh, and you know, the origin, notwithstanding, um, you know, it's it it that's the sort of ebb and flow. I think of. Of, of society to realize that something's good, and then there's agents within the so- society that ultimately determine, hey, this is this is not just good; it is a necessary for for living um, a real and full life in this this era that well, we're well look, that's in. the argument that it's necessary, but it's really not. Oh, right, it's, it's, no, it's really stipulated. not right, right, and 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 so I mean, food and and shelter is a necessity, but 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 education is actually not. Necessary, and that kind of leads to my other example. When, and, and just to jump in, I mean, you, yeah. get, you get the very clear demarcation of that, and in, in showing that it's it's very clearly that argument has been extended to its natural extreme, which is to say that all people should have the right, have the right and ability to go to college, and it's very clear that not only is that not. Uh, a right, it's probably not a good thing that right. all the people who are going to college are going to college. And so y- you see it break down and it's sort of in its, um, you know, reaching its, in its extremities where it, where it's likely to start fraying a bit of, around the edges as an argument. Correct. And, and, and that, that leads to the other example I've got, which is the development of the notion of privacy as a right, which again, that, that did not exist in the Middle Ages, right? The, the entire notion of, of having a private life of your own mind, it, it, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing. And, and, and Russ, you and I talked about this a bit, but, but you know, my take on this is that what really changed this in the, the, the way that we think about privacy was the Catholic Church when they said that, all right, everybody's got to go to confession, right? It's not just something for the kings and princes to go do, but, but everyone has to go and confess their internal thoughts and uh, sins, right? Even sins of the mind, but everyone has to go to confession. And that, that, that really did change things in the way that, that now people said, oh, well, I have this internal life of the mind, it's mine, right? And it's separate from my actions of the community. And I am responsible for that internal life of the mind as opposed to only being responsible for my community actions, which was the, and it's hard to describe today because we take it as, well, of course there's privacy. Of course you have this internal life of the mind that you're responsible for and uh, is a a source of strength and and, and everything else for us today. That didn't exist a thousand years ago. Well, not as a social construct. I I think there's always been those who have proposed that. And 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 who met and, and who met resistance. I, so I think the story you're telling one is of the the coercive influence in favor of and against that particular impulse. So, for example, you know I think you could very clearly make the argument that um, the much of Jesus's message was 
you know, at the time, I mean, he famously said, and this is usually a verse that you know, non-believers will bring up or atheists will bring up to, to come after, you know, particularly vociferous Christians. But you know, Jesus' advice to his his followers was, when you pray, you know, don't parade around the streets with you know the, the you know the verses on, on your head like the like the Pharisees do. Go into your home, shut the closet, and you know, speak directly to God. Right. That was the, Jesus' advice, and he was. You know, of course, we know that crucifies, right? And, and that was the reaction we had with them. But the church, of course, as, as you say, stifled that for so many years because it was important to maintain not the self, but the, the control over that, that nexus between man and God. And you know, Martin Luther, of course, was an important element of, of changing that. And as you say, the, the, the confession that was one-on-one you know, still goes through a priest, Remember, and That's so true. There, there, true. there is still a bit of that. And, and really, it wasn't until John Locke, I think, that you really started to see philosophy move in a direction that said, hey, the, every, you know, the, the social, everything social contracts, everything we know is a function of what we observe, right? The original empiricist. And so the idea of self as the source of knowledge, the logic and reason that we apply to our observation about what's going on in the world, I mean, it is very you know, 1680s, 1690s it is. It's a, concept. This is what I'm saying. It's a modern concept. It's a yeah. modern development. And in, in your notion about, in, in your, your comment about the, the, the biblical verse, New Testament verse is, is spot on because the, the word privacy, of course, comes from, you know, uh, well, the, of course. Uh, of course. Sorry, I shouldn't say that right. <laughs> pri- pri- privatio, right? Which, 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 which really meant, it's also the source of the word privation, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Right? So so the whole notion of privacy, that internal life of the mind, it was expressed by crazy people, by hermits. Hmm. Right? So that was the whole notion of being the hermit, of being closer to God, that, yeah, I'd go pray and you'd live in a cave. Right? That was what it meant to be a holy man. And that, that lots of cultures have that, have, have that notion. Hmm. But the notion of, of, of having privacy was associated with privation, with starving yourself. And and having that sort of isolation, so it it is all these things that you're talking about, right? Whether it's the the notion of okay, now everyone has to go to confession and think about their internal life of the mind. We have you know, as you say, Martin Luther. You have John Locke. It's been this this evolution, this development of the notion of privacy, of having that that internal thoughts that matter, as opposed and as you say, are the source of strength in what we do, as opposed to our community actions. We've gone, we've gone way off on this, but it, but it, but it's so cool to me that that so many of these things that we just take for granted either didn't exist or existed with totally different interpretations not so long ago. It's not true. so long ago. So where has the the media entertainment complex, as I like to to think about it, where is the role of that as this immutable? social you know construct when is is that is that a permanent thing or is it something that we've created as a society well Rusty, we were talking earlier and you had, you had a really good uh i think observation really putting into a nugget about how i'll say truth telling and again the intermediaries here and are you telling about tr- talking about truth with a capital t are you talking about the facts you know this the, i'll call it the, the the walter cronkite vision of news dissemination where you've got this honest broker, this neutral arbiter who will tell you the facts, or at least that was the, the perception and the view. I think in large part kind of the, the from, from where I know of, of what the, the, the people involved in 
media, you know, modern media. I, th- I think there was there was an element to that 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 rang somewhat true to me, and that's changed over the decades. And we were talking about when that changed, but 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 give us your nugget because I, I think this really encapsulates where this evolution is going here with media and, and news. Yeah, and I think there's you could, you can come up with all sorts of different examples of it, but I I think that I mean if we said. Cronkite or, or whoever it was, you know, I think if you asked a, a journalist 50 years ago, what what is your role in society? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they would describe it as as being some form of, of really an, an agent through which the citizenry um, are able to become informed about and potentially challenge and, you know, have the opportunity to to speak up against those who would coerce them, and whether that's through government or, or military or forces abroad. And, and the, 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 the media were an expression of and an agent of the people. Um, and, and I think that was, at least whether or not it was true in, in, in all reality, is, is challenged. Because you can certainly look at propaganda as, as, as nothing new and, and media as a, as a con, you know, purveyor and conveyor of propaganda has been around forever. So, uh, but I, I do think that was the, the conceptualization, self-conceptualization and the public's conceptualization of, of media and their role in society. And I, and I think that has changed, and, and I think it has changed to where their role in, whether you want to think of it in the political game, um, the power game of, of various parties in, in the world and in our country here, is as a principle. The media right. is right. has gone from agent to principle. And look, there's there's infinite examples, and we should, we should probably go through some. You know, one of the things I think is, is most fascinating that you've actually seen most recently, and, and this is not a value judgment, right, because... I have no opinion on whether this is the right or wrong thing to do, but it shows a little bit of that sign. If you're an agent, you are going to reflect where society is. If you're a principal, you are either going to try to be ahead of where society is to guide them in the right direction, or perhaps even behind society where society is to pull them back mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to ex- express your value judgments. It's interesting seeing the evolution in style guides. As you sort of look around the different publications and, and newspapers, and you know, for example, so wait, what you saying? So the actual choice of words oh, and yes. grammatical instructions reflect this transition from well, agent to principal. Think about gender pronouns, right? What percentage of of right, Americans right, 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 are right. you know really there yet on on you know self-selecting gender pronouns? Going back to what we've always been taught as the incorrect use of they mm-hmm, whenever it's mm-hmm, ambiguous, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but style guides now are all embracing now it requiring and, that. And it's and and as you and again no value judgment on it, just an observation that that's clearly ahead of where society is. And I think if you ask most people who are in media and journal and, and journalists today, they would say, "I'm doing this because I want to change the world for the better." They are, they are the vanguard party, to, uh, to, to, to use a, a phrase from uh, our, our friend Carl. Agents are not vanguards. Principles are vanguards. Are vanguards, right. Yeah. The vanguard party. Yeah. That's fascinating. This, this whole notion of, of agent and principle, of course, it was there with how we think about our, our, our political institutions as well, right? You know, and that, that's been this, that was the old federalist, anti-federalist mm-hmm. debate here in this country, Right. Is your elected representative your agent? Right. Is he expressing the will of the people who sent him or her to Washington? Right. Or are you being elected as a really a, a self-decided somewhat your own man, your own woman, right, to make decisions on behalf of the people who sent you? 
there. It, it, it's one of these, these, these really important questions. And, and, I, and I do see that this, this transformation from, from agent to principal, it, that's ahead of where people have been. It's true. Isn't it? But, you know, it's interesting because we're talking about this in, con- in context of a financial-oriented blog. Right. I think, I think investment media has been here for a long for time, 10 or 15 years. Right. Right. Because, and, and anyone who, not to throw CNBC under the bus, but let's throw CNBC <laughs> under the bus. Anyone who thinks there is any actual information being conveyed on CNBC of, of any investment merit, um, uh, if, beyond being delusional, is, is, is wrong. And... And I think a lot of that comes from well-intentioned regulation, right? The idea that we are going to legislate the communication of material facts out of out of circulation through, you know, restricting the ability of of public company CEOs to have private conversations about you know material information with investors. Once that that becomes verboten, you know, the the public sphere information shifts from being about that to being driving narratives. Using the media as an engine to promote um, ideas, and then the media then becomes part of the machine and part of the monster, and ultimately becomes uh, a promoter of their own narratives to begin with. So we've been seeing, we've been watching CNBC do this for twenty years. Right. We're just now watching that phenomenon come. I think to the rest of media, where you know other forces are driving it, but I think it's the same direction. Uh, you know, I, I think you're exactly right, Rusty. And I, the, I was thinking about this the the other day when I was reading about. The use of polls, the use of political polls, and the the way that they are constructed, but to use in a way to try to not reflect or show what public opinion truly is, but a way to try to motivate public opinion going going forward, right? Which is which is exactly what I talk about in epsilon theory with this notion of the common knowledge game and thinking about it in terms of markets. That markets are driven by we call in game theory missionaries. And their, their, their role here, their goal here is not to act as an agent, not to say the words that they truly think to reflect their own mm-hmm. opinion, but to use their words as in the form of a principle to try to drive you to certain behaviors. Well, and the, the most, I think, pernicious, and, and we talk about this a lot, example of that is the way in which the small t true of facts have transitioned from being simply that fact to one of the things we talk about in, in Epsilon theory, which is a form of virtue signaling. Right. The, the right. presence and reliance and, and perhaps exclusive reliance on facts as being the not only sine qua non, but really the the whole of what one must do in order to signal I am virtuous, I am unbiased, I am balanced because all you have in front of you are facts. There are no opinions here, which is, of course, so untrue, absurd, and, right. and you know, ridiculous. And then, but that is that that is that transition. It's it's facts are no longer facts. They're virtue signaling. Yeah, and 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 you're right. I think it is now coming into politics in a way that's been in markets for, as you say, you know, some some decades now, or or more than a decade since it was made illegal, frankly, to give useful facts. Right. And, and, and once useful facts, once private information can no longer be legally conveyed, what, what are you left with? You're left with the intentional selection of broad public facts that you weave together into a narrative or a story that suits your own interest as, as a principle. 
and and I and I was struck by this uh, again talking about the the what we've seen this last political cycle is the because I want to get back to this notion of well when did this when did this transition happen this transition from media as agent to principal I think it's happened in large part because people have recognized how effective it is to use media to use a story again not just to convey your own or the 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 neutral to the degree it can be neutral facts about a situation, but to try to 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 lead to behaviors going forward, and, and I see this in the in the construction of polls. And there were it's this notion of the oversampling of polls. How are you constructing a poll? So, for example, uh, and this was I think pretty endemic in the in the Clinton campaign going forward, which was or seen recently was that they would oversample, meaning that in a battleground state, they would uh, ask more Democrats than are actually there in Ohio, a higher percentage of Democrats in their poll, who are you going to vote for? And naturally, because you've constructed the poll to ask more people who you believe are going to be favorable to your candidate, the result of your poll will be, hey, Hillary's in the lead here, and she, that lead is growing, and she's got this commanding lead. And they do that not because, and they know that they're oversampling, but they do it because the act of reporting that result, that Hillary is in the lead and winning, motivates other people to say, oh, she's the winner, I'm going to vote for her. Right? And, that, and that's this very powerful phenomenon in, I'll, I'll call it game theory, but any sort of human social interaction where you see this consensual validation, you see the, that the truth is represented to you as being for this person or that person or this stock or that stock. And so you become more uh, um, favorably inclined to that stock or that, or that, or that, or that candidate. But I think where it really, uh, played a, a deleterious role, right, is, is when you start believing your own cooked messages, which I think has absolutely been the case of both the DNC as well as the White House, that they, you, you know, it's the old saying, you know, don't start believing your own press releases. You know, when you start believing that these oversampled polls are the truth, are reality, then you start convincing yourself uh, rather than convincing others. But it's everywhere now, this notion of oversampling to use the message, not as a reflection of reality, but as a way to try to influence future behavior. Well, and that's where, and I think in this discussion of fiat news, right? knowing where fiat news begins and just good old-fashioned bias ends, I think is very challenging. Um, you know, I think obviously, and we can take it as a prior, though, for whatever reason, some people seem uh, intent on dismissing it. The, I mean, as a principal or as an agent, the, the, the media complex was always leaning in a, in a progressive direction. And that certainly, um, that certainly increased, I think, in its intensity. Um, you know, for some of the reasons we've talked about, a lot of which is, you know, the people who've chosen to do that are people who want to make positive change um, as, a, as a reason for, you know, getting into journalism. And so there, there starts to become a little bit of uh, emphasis on, on the ends. And as long as we affect the change, the methods through which it's achieved are, are 
not necessarily. Well, here's what I take what you're saying, Rusty, which is that because there's been some notion that, well, the way to save the news is to take it away from the for-profit sector, right? That the way to save our news as this neutral arbiter is to turn everything into NPR, right? Is that to then have the government fund or support it. And what you're saying, which I I, I literally could not agree more with, is that that doesn't solve the problem. That doesn't solve the problem of fiat or bias. In fact, I think it makes it worse. No, not at all. Well, not at all. And as we, as we discussed at the end, I think the the fiat news is is likely to become. It's not just media acting as principal. I mean, I think it it there is sort of the Sauron Saruman situation where Saruman thinks he's acting as a principal, but he's really just an agent <laughs> for Sauron. And, and and I think it's sorry, I, I knew, didn't mean to go. Hey, there, we, we get we, we get we get a Lord of the Rings reference in here. That that, that makes it a successful but it podcast. Is where the, you know, and so I'm. I'm deliberately casting the, the the media as Saruman, which is admittedly the lesser of two evils, and government as Sauron, right? And this idea that, you know, look, you the media is a willing publisher of all sorts of fiat news. I guarantee you a media member did not come up with the term hacked the election. Hacked the election came from someone who knew very clearly what they were doing, the message they wanted to communicate, because it wasn't, look, if we say documents got leaked, that doesn't convey the right narrative. Right, right, if we right. say hacked emails of a person who was somewhat involved with someone who was up for election, well, that's a little bit long-winded. That doesn't work. Let's just say hacked the election. Hacked the election, right. And so Fiat News comes as a result of that, not, I think, because of media acting as a principle, but thinking it's acting as a principle while being fed selective facts um, by by the real principles behind the scenes. Yeah, and, and, it, and that's not to deny that there are lots of principles in this world, like other governments, like Russia, who are who are similarly acting as principles, and oh, and, and, and and it's and it's uh, it's what I, I try to do when I or the reason I try to write epsilon theory is to try to get some sort of recognition that we as independent human beings making our own decisions with our our own minds and our own ability to interpret things, we have to recognize that we that we live in a world of very powerful principles, not agents, not our agents, certainly, who are trying to impact our behavior, whether it's our purchasing behavior, whether it's our investing behavior, or whether it's our voting behavior. And that the, the, the sooner we realize that that's the way the world is. Uh, you know, the the more effective we can be at 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 protecting ourselves and our families and our our groups that that, that mean something to us. Well, I couldn't agree more. Part of the trick there is recognizing the tools that that all of those parties have at their disposal, and and many of them are, are so subversive that it, that it makes it challenging. You know, I, uh, the example that I think of when I'm working with, with my portfolio managers um, of one of the most common issues in, in analysis for por- portfolio construction, especially for multi-asset portfolios, is what is, what is your universe of assets? Right. Right. And, and wh- or what is your universe of securities that, that you're ultimately picking from? It's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating, especially in the quantitative investment world, how many factors you can derive, how many signals you can identify that... 
um, you spend all this very rigorous, you know, um, uh, in sample and out of sample testing on. You've developed these models, really profound, cut of, cutting edge, state of the art risk estimation models, and all of those decisions that you've been so rigorous around are completely dwarfed by the decision you made on which securities and asset classes and instruments to include as part of your universe. Right, to look at in the first place. Right. And so the corollary, I think, for this discussion on, on fiat news or fake news and counterfeit news is the selection of facts that are being put before us. That dominates is, everything it else. dominates. Right. And so this notion that PolitiFact or the, the BBC – which is, of course, funded by the British government or PBS, then the various initiatives these these organizations have to do fact-checking, the very reality that each of them has the ability to select which facts they want to include in their analysis of whether a statement was true or not is, is the entire problem. And so it, it compounds it by, as we talked about earlier, the, the virtue signaling of something being fact-based, you know, uh, you know, Dr. Tyson getting on Twitter and saying, I want to live in a country called Realitania, where right. all decisions are made by scientists who look at nothing but facts and reason. It's like, okay, well, what's, tell me, can you tell me what your objective function is? And can you, I mean, it's, yeah. and yeah. that's the problem is that you, you, there is so much selection bias that something being fact-based has absolutely no relevance to whether or not it's, it's fiat news. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this is what I meant earlier when I was talking about the, the the role of technology here. Because let's take a Facebook as a platform, because the 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 whole exercise here is that if if Facebook and I, I really believe that Facebook and Amazon are are moving towards being your platform for news provision. Yeah. That's their that's their entire goal here, uh, because it is so powerful. Uh, but what is happening is is that you've got these platforms now that control that range of choice that you're describing is goes in the the, the universe of, of uh, securities that a portfolio manager might look That's at right. right so so now it's going to be Facebook and ultimately it'll be Amazon that are so here's the universe of facts and you can you can argue and, and great arguments will be had over fact checking within that universe. But it's that selection of the universe of facts that is the total control here. That that's that that uh, gatekeeper ability to say, okay, this is a source of information that is available to you. That's everything. Once you control that gate, you control the whole thing. Everything else is just uh, an argument off to the side. It's a it's a diversion. It is, and and to get back to your earlier point and sort of admonition that we we come to some understanding, well, well how, do we, how do we deal with that? Well, I have a very smug elitist answer, unfortunately, and it's not what, what we really want here, but it is that we, we have to have a worldview, a perspective that is more immutable in nature that allows us a lens through which to evaluate the information that we see. I mean, when you, when you talk to people, and you gave an example earlier of the Federalist versus Anti-Federalist perspective, I mean, how many Americans do you think have a perspective on whether their core belief is that the role of a an elected representative is to act as proxy for the the majority of his constituents or to to vote his conscience? Now, if you use the expression "vote his conscience," they would say that because it oh, has we want right that right? Yeah, because it sounds but good. If you actually describe the two in, in rough terms, and I think that writ large. But, but here's what is I think, what Rusty. I, I think though that 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 it is possible to communicate that underlying debate 
and to have that debate. I, I think I, I absolutely think that people are both smart enough, informed enough, and like to 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 have that to make that choice. Well, what do you want in your representative? Right. What does representation mean, in other words? So, you know, what's the, what, what does it mean? But what we have today is, is, is not is the absence of making that choice. It is, it is that the choice is made for you by these other principles, some of whom are, have different views of this. So you have some principles who want to uh, package and um, uh, make what we call in sales the, the assumptive close, right? Mm-hmm. right? Uh, and they package it in such a way that, oh, yeah, that's what I want. Right. Vote your conscience. Oh, of course I want vote your conscience. And then on the other side, you'll have someone who says, well, you know, you want somebody who, who represents you. Right. Who's who, exactly. right. And, and so but it's these principles who are packaging this as a presumptive close as opposed to allowing. And, and, that, and, and that and I'm using that word advisedly allowing and it shouldn't be allowing. It should be that the people demanding to make that choice for themselves. But but how? And and yeah, I don't and, know. And I hate to be fatalistic, but we're <laughs> all know. we're all sitting with a beautiful recipe book on our on our kitchen counter, and we go down to the grocery store, and everything there is prepackaged. It's all Twinkies that have already combined eight ingredients. It's all Doritos. Doritos are delicious. Don't get me wrong, uh, but. It's, there's no ingredients there that are presented in raw, unvarnished format. Everything is packaged, and, well, and there's no way to access it. Well, I'm going to tell you how, and, and, and this, this, this is going to sound highfalutin or, or maybe even delusional. See, that was, you know, elitist and smug was where I was going. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Highfalutin. Highfalutin, right, yeah. Right, right. Uh, when I say that I want to make Epsilon Theory a movement, I really mean that. I mean, I mean let's make Epsilon Theory a super pack, right? Let, let, let's, let's, it, that's... That's actually, I'm not being flip about that, right? I, I mean, to, I think you have to change these things in small ways. I, and I think where it starts is that, I'm going to bring it back to poker, where if you've been playing poker for 30 minutes and you don't know who the sucker is at the table, it's you, right? And, and I think that's true for the role of citizens and investors to recognize that we are immersed in this world of principles, not agents, who are packaging our decisions for us, but we do have a recipe book. And the, the first step here has to just to be to recognize that, oh, that's the world we're in now, that there is a recipe book here, right? And we don't have the ingredients to make it, but we, 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 we can't find those ingredients even in small ways. We can't start to make this journey until we recognize this is the ersatz world this potemkin village world that we're that, that we're in so look i i do think that's a role in kind of small ways for 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 us here at epsilon theory just to, to start talking about that and then it's for other people to pick up right for for how we actually move that forward in both little ways and big ways in the world of investing in the world of politics and i really think that what we're looking for is again in little ways and big ways is to reclaim I'll use an investment world word alpha, right? It's been eliminated from our investment world because we can't talk about private information in most cases legally, right? And it's it's been eliminated in our political world as well because the principles have realized, oh, if I can just focus on the big lie, if I can just focus on the narrative and choose the facts, which I will then package and represent to you, that's so much more effective than actually having to get into the actual 
nitty gritty of of getting a political view established or or one in our argument. CEOs love Reg FD, of course. Yes, exactly. Of course. Makes their life so much easier. Well, so how do we make the tent bigger? I'd love to hear from listeners and readers and make them part of the dialogue to to achieve exactly what you described. How do we do that? That's right. How do we make this a movement? Right. Yeah. So so how do we start advocating for it's the liberty of information, the liberty for us as individuals to make up our own minds without having the food processed for us, both in investing as well as in politics. Man, that sounds like a pretty good way to go out, Michael. I think so. Thanks, guys, for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for, for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>